Hello, everybody. So I'm recording this right now, and it's storming outside, and my husband is outside milling some wood for the rabbit palace that is now underway. There's a little duck, the one I referred to earlier, who, by the way, is now officially dubbed Patty. We're not sure if it's a boy or a girl, but we figure Patty works either way. It's either Patty with two T's or Patty with two D's. But Patty it is, uh, is at my feet, tucking his little tiny bill in between my toes because I'm come to learn that baby ducks, that ducklings, have a great deal of security in tucking their beaks into things. Even when I hold him, he wants to tuck his beak underneath my fingers. And it's a nice segue to talk about Patty because I'm actually, my first question is going to be that I'm going to answer is going to be about ducks. But I thought I would just tell you something that I learned this week for any future duck keepers. So our ducks, uh, we have both uh, meat breed and laying breed and this will work into the question nicely that Alexandra asked me just like chickens there's layer breeds and meat breed breeds sorry so our ducks are mostly for eggs but there are some bigger ones we have some Peking ducks usually people will they're sort of like the Cornish cross of the chicken world they're they're industrialized birds if you buy a duck at a grocery store it's 99.9% uh, .9 sure it's going to be a Peking duck because they grow so quickly but we've actually kept a breeding trio of Peking ducks that are just out there with the layers and the reason for that is that we're getting a cross then with our egg laying birds they're all together so we're getting crosses and getting a little bit more meat on our egg layers which when you do go to butcher egg laying ducks they're very small there's not a lot of meat even on the bigger layer birds there's really not a heck of a lot of meat and so we found that getting some bigger genetics and like most of our animals they sort of cross we're going more for carcass and health and ability to forage than we are a specific breed and so we've been able to get our laying ducks to have a, a bigger carcass yield when it comes time for them to meet their maker as it were. In addition to this what we've come to realize over the years is the importance of a pond and I know that a lot of places will tell you you don't need a pond to raise ducks and I suppose that's true but I'm ever more grateful for the pond that we did invest in this week as Patty has taught me something interesting about the raising of ducks and I can see that if I were to raise a duck without a pond, I would definitely be running into this situation more commonly. So I'm gonna share it with everyone here who has ducks or is thinking of getting ducks or anyone that's just interested in these weird little things like I am. So Patty, after his amazing bout of will to survive -edness, 
was doing really well for the first couple days. And then on the third day, he seemed to develop a limp and I thought maybe he hurt his foot. And the limp got worse and worse uh, just as the day progressed. By the second day, I noticed that he was sitting a lot more than normal and would sort of get up and, you know, limp over to eat. His, his appetite was great. Everything else was great. He was, he's commenting on my commentary right now. Everything else was great, but the limp got worse. And then by the end of that second day of from when he initially developed that limp, he seemed to have trouble with both of his feet. So I did some research into this and I found out that there is a common issue with ducks. It can be seen in goslings and in turkeys as well, where they develop a niacin deficiency and it can completely cripple them. And indeed by that following morning, little Patty was just sitting. He could barely get up and it's easy. It looks very similar to sort of an injury uh, there was no deformity evident, but I quickly got into action and I supplemented his feed, which was, by the way, an organic duck grower. So that shouldn't have happened, but it does. It can, especially if niacin isn't added properly. So I supplemented his feed with some nutritional yeast. They say brewer's yeast, but I'm not a fan of brewer's yeast, and nutritional yeast has high amounts of niacin in it as well. I also put a little bit of the nutritional yeast in his water, which he kind of balked at initially, but he got over it. And um, what else did I do? I put some vitamin B complex into a gallon of water, a capsule, because I didn't have just niacin, but you're, you can and probably should use niacin specifically, but the B-complex to me seems like it would be more synergistic. So I added that to a gallon of water um, and gave that to him instead of just straight water. And it was just miraculous to see the turnaround in this stack within hours, literally within hours, his one leg started improving. Uh, a couple hours later and now he's running around like a maniac making up for lost time just going going for broke now I can't even keep up with him so it's super exciting I'm gonna keep him on this until he's uh, six weeks old six to eight weeks old you're supposed to continue the supplementation so I tell you all that because I have been raising ducks and geese for about 13 years now and have never dealt with this problem before but when I went to go research it I was reading again and again about how common it is and that you know this is this is seen quite a bit and it got me thinking that a lot of ducks are not raised with ponds and we have got away with Actually, there are times, and I would say most of the time, we have just fed uh, baby goslings, baby poults, because this can also happen in turkeys, apparently, not to the same extent, but they get curly toes, it's called. Um, and also the ducklings with often just organic chicken starter, which 
none of our uh, chicken, none of our poultry feed is medicated, but a chicken starter has woefully inadequate amounts of niacin for, uh, for these bigger waterfowl birds. And I think the reason that we've been able to get away with this is simply because of our pond and because, you know, I, I maybe should take a video, but when we let the birds out of their house in the morning, they come whipping out of there, fly right into the pond before they even go to their food. And they just maniacally go around eating all of the pond skimmers, all of the little bugs that are on the surface of the water up along the edges, they dig their beaks or sorry, their bills into the earth that's around the edges of the pond. And they're actually constantly making that pond bigger because of the way they're eroding it. But they're eating all the little the little bugs, the insects, the roots of the plants that are visible through the edging of the pond. And I guess that there's plenty of niacin in all of that because the only, like I said, the only duckling I've seen this in in all these years has been this little guy who was here with me in the house being fed the starter. And of course, I was still bringing him outside and letting him eat grass and stuff, but it just, it wasn't enough. So that's my little my little anecdotal story for anybody that's raising ducks. And with that, I will get on to the first question, which was Alexandra's. And she's asking how to start with ducks. And I think I answered part of this already with just sort of the distinction between the meat and the layer birds is what do you want them for, Alexandra, if it's for eggs or if it's for meat. And so you'll get different breeds depending on that. I think that if ducks is your first animal, you're giving yourself a bit of a challenge to begin with. They're, like I said, you can raise them without a pond, but if you can give them a little pond, it would be much better. Um, a bigger pond's even better. But uh, there's also breeds that do better without water than other breeds. And I think muscovies tend to do better without I mean, you know, of course they all want ponds, but I think they do better. I think the Peking, the meat ones do better as well, but that's something you might want to look into. And then as far as grazing nutrients, um, feed costs, these are all things you have to think about too. Ducks can be prolific eaters if they don't have if they don't again I'm going to go back to the pond so for us we have a, a deep pond but we also there's costs involved in that so there was the cost of having an excavator dig that pond for us for sure that was that was not cheap and then on top of that we fenced off that area so again another cost we had to make sure that we dedicated some of our pasture to that so there's pasture around the pond so they have access to that and we have to run um, an aerator, a pond aerator. Otherwise, it's just going to be pure scuzz. Um, it's it's fed. Ours is a spring fed, but it's not. When the water table goes down, the it doesn't get. It's only getting um, rainwater. So those are all things to think about too. As far as like you know the the grazing of them if you if you don't have a pond I mean you can always work around that and you can move 
fencing to making you know and making sure that they have I know some people use little kitty swimming pools and stuff like that for their for their ducks to make sure they still have access to water because it's it really is part of their makeup and even if they don't have a pond they should have some way to go and splash around and it's they're just so much happier having that so I hope that those were some of the things um you know, I'm not trying to discourage you at all, but I, I do think ducks is a more challenging bird to start with. And I understand you don't want chickens because you have access to chicken eggs. But uh, yeah, I think that if you're if you're doing it for the eggs, you might want to just sort of think about how you could move around the fencing, move around the water, make sure they have a place to be locked up at night. Otherwise, they're just sitting ducks. Har har. And I think that's about, uh, if there's anything more that you have specifically, uh, Alexander, just ask me in the comments. Okay, Grace is asking about the electrolytes that I'm using. I wrote down the recipe somewhere, Grace, and um, I'm going to say this to everybody, but I wish that Substack would let me tag things and archive things into easy to find little folders so far they don't allow me to do that and I understand it's set up more as a writing program and I really like it um, and I think they'll probably develop that in time but for now it's sort of like the old-fashioned go through a file folder and try and remember where you put it kind of thing but I will write out the electrolyte recipe that I use and you can use that as your jumping off point um, also Grace mentioned that she was intrigued when Troy said that using electrolytes during his night shifts was a game changer and uh, it really was I try to get things to stick with him sometimes you know some tinctures or some supplement or something I think would be good for him and it's really hard to make things stick with him but he is so dedicated to his electrolytes that I it's not too often especially in the heat of summer when he's sweating a lot working outside that I'll see him drink straight up water um, mostly we are making our own he does um, and has used the element ones. I'll also put a link for those ones in there. But we both pretty much just use the salt. We neither of us are um, like it, it. Just doesn't feel as hydrating when it's got a little bit of sweet in it for us. But I'll, I'll put a link to what we do and um, also the element ones. All right. So Cassandra's asking about adaptogens which and how okay <laughs> that's a big question and i'll try and answer it in as succinct a way as i can cassandra so for adaptogens i use probably all of the ones that there are i haven't had any issue using any of them and i don't use them all the time i use them sort of in a six to eight week rotation or when my body's just like yeah that was great i don't need it anymore i try to just go with that so for those of you that don't know an adaptogen is just um it's a plant that is meant to work with our body it doesn't have like a specific 
purpose of of going in the body and doing one thing or bringing this up or that down or whatever it is it's more adapting to whatever it is that your body needs so as an example ginseng um, can bring your body back into balance these are this is the theory behind adaptogens and so but there are ones that you'll find a little more stimulating ones that you'll find a little more relaxing Um, And so that's why it's really good to have a base knowledge and then just to do some experimenting to see where you're at. You know, if you're feeling really anxious or stressed out, I don't think you want to start taking rhodiola, for example. I find I like rhodiola when I'm feeling kind of blah and draggy. But it's not like coffee. It's It's not that same level of stimulation. But other things like ashwagandha, I can add a little bit here and there without issue. And it just seems to center me and um, it's quite calming for me. When I was quite sick with Lyme, Eleuthero really, really helped me. It was, I took Eleuthero and tincture. But having said that, all of these things can be taken in tincture, but For myself, I prefer to do infusions and and teas. I really like teas. And sometimes I'll do tinctures as well. But I just like the... For me, I find I use uh, adaptogens mostly in a calming, centering way. And because of that, it's nice to also drink it as a tea or an infusion. So... For something like, uh, let's say, like reishi, which is also a fungus and one of the adaptogens I really like, I will do a simmer with with the reishi and then I will leave it overnight in the water and then the next morning I can filter it out and warm it up if I want to and make a tea with it with some cream and some egg yolk or maybe just by itself. And you can also make concentrates as well. So one of my, to cook, let's say, uh, chaga, which isn't an adaptogen, but it, I am really, really inspired by funguses and um, these different mushrooms. You have to be careful, though, because a lot of them are cultivated and they can be cultivated on a grain substrate and when they go to harvest the commercial processors when they go to harvest these mushrooms they'll take the whole thing so it's not necessarily the fruiting body that you're getting but it's actually all the mycelium that you're getting which includes the grain substrate so you could be getting oats as an example and I'm going to have to pause this because my little duckling baby is yelling at me. I think he needs some water. I'll be right back. My apologies for that rude little interruption by the duckling, but he doesn't know his manners and we can't fault him for that. Um, So to continue, Cassandra, um, I think I was on the topic of mushrooms. So something like chaga, for example, I've written about before, where what I do is I cook it down for three hours. And that's important to do just because it because of the way the cellular structure is on the actual the actual fungus, it takes a long time to 
properly you know you have to grind it up dry it grind grind it up and then cook it down into a concentrate and I really like making those concentrates as well so I'll have let's say two half gallon jars of concentrate in my fridge and then when I go to make a tea or a latte or something like that I'm just using a a little bit of it and adding it to other things and even you can just even add it to warm water to make a tea it's a nice way to do it because then you always have this concentrate in your fridge but I'm going to put a link to a book that I think I have a few different books on adaptogens some of them are great some of them are not so great but they're there's uh, one that just came out a couple of years ago, and it's, I think, for anyone that's interested in this topic, it's a really good one to get. Um, either buy it or just get your library to bring it in if they don't have it. And it's it's really helpful. It talks through all of them and then also the different ways you might want to start experimenting with them. And I think those types of books are great for just getting started and then, you know, just try things and listen to your body. You might find... Like I do, for example, I tend to go through these things with maca where I just want maca. I I can just feel like I want it. And that's because I've had a history of using it and I'll I'll take it and take it and take it. And then it's just, you know, after a couple of weeks, it feels it feels great and I don't feel badly. It's just like, you know, ready to move on from this now and and then I just tuck it away for later on so it's like I said it's nice to get these books as a foundational thing but then just really tune into your body and see what it likes and what it doesn't like but I hope that's useful we have tinctures like I said of the adaptogens as well but they're while they're helpful especially for me when I as I mentioned with the eleuthero I took that as tincture because I was taking it all throughout the day and it was really helpful for me in that form but I like most of my herbal medicines as infusions and and teas for the most part okay Julia's asking if we ever grill meat yeah sure we grill meat why or why not why because it tastes good and we use uh we have an oval xl which is kind of like the big green egg i think it's called or the big egg the green egg something like that but we have so it's like a ceramic type grill and we use wood chips in it it takes a while to warm it up and we just like grilled meat. I just like the taste of it. I know there's some thought that there's an issue with charring on meat and stuff. I'm, I'm really not worried about it. I think that all of those types of studies have to be taken into context with the type of meat and what people are eating and how often they're doing it and all that sort of thing. And I think any one thing of something, grilling meat every single day, I would not do. Do I do it in the house? No, I don't. I... I just every now and then as a treat we'll grill up a steak or something like that and we also with the one that we have it's also a smoker as well so we'll use it as a smoker at times just for that yummy umami smoky taste okay so Rachel is asking how we get our hay for winter so on our first farm Rachel we we did all of our own hay on our farm so a portion of the pastures were set aside for hay one year and then the next year we'd uh, rotate rotationally graze the cattle through the pastures now we buy our hay so i'll just expand on that a little bit so 
it's common here where I live. I'm not sure where you are, but for people to own a farm and not farm it. And instead what they do is they get other farmers in the area to cut hay off their fields. And then that allows them to qualify as a farm and to get the farm rate for their property taxes. So it's great that the pastures are being used for hay, but what's not great is that the animal, those pastures never see animals. And that's not at all the way that we keep soils healthy by taking and taking and taking from them every year. You can't just cut hay every year and not replace it either with compost or manure or the animals rotationally moving through those fields themselves. Or uh, if you want to see what happens when fields get compacted and depleted, you could just take a drive through the countryside and you can see places where, you know, then what we're growing and calling hay and feeding animals when they are at their lowest immunologically, as far as uh, you know, in the in the middle of the winter when it's minus 30 here and everything's damp and animals don't have any access to fresh forages, they're reliant on the those same dry forages. But if they are always coming off like here, the old guys will say that's a hay field, you know, like as if it's a it's a distinct field from a grazing field. Um. And so, yeah, you'll get depleted animals just from the depleted feed. So ideally, wherever hay is coming off, it's getting that soil is getting fed, like I said, either with manure, compost, or the grazing animals, or some people will put through rotations of of green feed crops. They'll rotate through different crops that have higher nitrogen in them to sort of feed back the soil. I think animals are obviously the the best way to do it but hopefully there's something happening I'm saying because otherwise the quality of what's coming off there and being called hay is very poor so as I started off saying where we first farmed we did all of our own hay we got the equipment at auctions bit by bit and we cut and dried and baled and stacked all of our hay by uh, hand and now where we live there's just no possibility for that so our farm is has cleared pastures but it's also a lot of forest and like I've mentioned before we do silvo pasturing so where it's forest now is actually all cleared we have pictures dating back from just shortly after the 1900s and it was completely cleared. It was all fields, but it's all grown back now over the years as people had bought this farm and not used it for grazing animals. So we're returning the animals to the forest and doing that with some thought and care, not just turning them out there and ignoring them. But it just means that we are reliant on other people for hay. And we're very blessed that we have some friends that have an organic farm and they just cut the most beautiful hay but like I said we are reliant on other people for that and it is definitely a cost it's and it's going to get more expensive I'm hoping in the fall I have a friend named Dylan who is a lifelong cattle rancher from Alberta and him and I were going to do some 
podcasting together and it would just be specifically about farming things. But he has so much to say about the situation with Hay being a, a rancher on the prairie and where he lives, it's been drought for years and years now, literally, and they are having to bring in hay from as far away as the United States. So there's a lot that goes into that conversation, but I hope that I gave you a little bit at least to start thinking about. And uh, if you want to talk about more, you could um, put something in the comments or we could talk about it further in another Q&A if you wanted me to expand on anything there. Thanks for the question, Rachel. Okay, so Janelle's asking about feeding chickens to chickens, the supplements that we add for our chickens, and if I sterilize the housing. So um, we do not feed any animal back to that animal. I know it can be kind of common in homesteading circles to feed eggshells back to chickens. I learned many years ago, well before I had a farm, about some ideas from a biodynamic farmer that really resonated with me and they've stuck with me throughout these years and uh, there's a lot of them but one of them was the idea of the form of a thing so what I mean by that is let's take a chicken and a chicken's egg a chicken when it makes its egg is using different nutrients and forms of those nutrients in order to make something that it's expelling from its body. So what comes out is what the body puts into a certain form to expel. So then what does that mean when we're putting it back in? Is it because it's from the same animal? We think that it's somehow more absorbable when in fact, I think it's the opposite. Uh, I think that what what it, the body has done to excrete something is not what the body needs to absorb something. So it doesn't make sense. Uh, in the same way, there's different people have different ideas on drinking urine as an example. We could apply that there as well. Using human waste as compost on the plants that we're going to eat you can use that there as well. It's it's a big topic and something that could probably be discussed for a couple hours and would really do by having a robust conversation with different people around the topic. But that principle sticks with me and I never ever feed the same animal anything from that animal's body that's been excreted. I just don't think it's in the right form for absorption. So... No, we don't, we don't do that. We never do that. And I know there's different things around health and safety, and that's actually not the reason that I avoid doing that. It's because of what I've already explained. Um, as far as supplementation with chickens, uh, Janelle brought up that she knew that we fed uh, ground up offal. Actually, what we feed in the winter as a supplement, Janelle, is ground up trim. Uh, guts and tripe so when we butcher animals not chickens obviously for why I just explained but let's say um, beef as an example or we've done it with pork as well Uh, we'll use the trim from when we're butchering uh, what we dry age our meat for let's say I'll I'll just use beef as an example uh, for 21 days on average 
And so when we go to butcher the meat, there's a hard sort of shell around the outside of the meat and that gets trimmed off. So that's one of the things that gets put into the ground bucket for the birds and also as you're butchering there's always going to be a little bit of trim a little bit of sinew a corner here that you want to shave off just to make something that would reasonably fit in a pot all those sorts of things and that all gets to put into uh, pails that we then later grind same with guts um there's, uh, because we're talking about cattle right now, there's four chambers of their digestive system that will open up and in some of them it'll just be sort of a semi-fermented grass and there's different types of tripe actually in each of those chambers and I'll cut away some of that. It's a very messy stinky job and it, depending on the time of year, if it's warm out the flies and often the just carnivorous wasps will be all around me trying to vie for what I'm trying to get into but in the winter time it really saves our hide with the with the birds well we find that we'll still get a little bit of eggs from them but it's also just their vitality and their vibrancy we don't use and never ever have used any medications with any of our fowl ever never had to and I, I'm sure that's multifactorial, but definitely adding some supplementation into their winter feed when everything is just encrusted and nice is a big part of that. So that is it for supplements other than I will give them apple cider vinegar in their water. I tend to do it for a while and then I forget about it and I do it for a while and I forget about it. So by all means, you don't have to be doing it every single day with every single water. That's probably, it's probably even a little detrimental to do that. And I will also, I don't know, maybe once every few weeks when I think about it, we'll take a handful of eastern kelp and that's granules not granules but like ground up and I'll put a handful of that on top of their feed I don't even know if that does anything but I just do it for good measure and as far as the house sterilizing Janelle mentioned that uh, I guess a lot of she sees a lot of people sterilizing houses all the time there's a couple reasons we don't do that I've never done that and I don't want to do that at all. Who wants to do all that for what? So one of them obviously is the way we approach all of everything on our farm, but also with our health. And that's that sterilizing causes more issue than it does anything else. There's good bacteria, there's helpful insects, there's all sorts of reasons why uh, house, uh, ours and theirs and a body and an animal should not be sterilized. So, but what I'll tell you what we do do. So in probably about a month or so from now, the, the poultry house right now is still on their winter bedding pack. So all winter long, well, actually, let me just start with this time of year and I'll explain it throughout the year and how we approach the sterilizing it's not sterilizing, we'll say the cleaning out of their house. So right now they're still on their winter pack. If I was able to have five more people working on this farm or hire somebody that wouldn't exist, it would be cleaned out by now. But it's just Troy and I and we're 
trying to get in the whole garden. And as a lot of you know, we're going to be just eating off our farm solely for this year. So that has added another, we're just being very careful about making sure we have an abundance of food and no cutting corners because, oh, well, we can get this from John if we run out of this or whatever it is. So right now, the chicken house still has its winter bedding pack. That means that every few days I'm adding wood chips on the top of it to keep things fresh in there, to keep things clean, clean smelling uh, when they're, you know, they only go into their house at nighttime so that they don't get eaten. But, you know, they're still pooping and peeing in there at nighttime. All right. So when I go to clean out this house, which will probably in all likelihood, I'll get to that in about a month from now, we're going to shovel out all of that bedding and it's probably I'm going to say between two and three feet deep right now and we're going to shovel that all out for a few days because it'll take a couple days and once all that's shoveled out and put into a compost pile we will then be left with the wood walls we have a gravel floor in there and uh, this is a part of our barn And what I'm going to do is what I do every year and I do this in every house. So the duck house and the goose house will also get this too, is I take hydrated lime. I don't know, maybe some of you remember back in the day and actually a lot of people still do it now where they'll whitewash the inside of a barn. Um, I whitewash the big part of our barn where there's some milk stalls and you can definitely do that in this situation too with whitewashing all the boards and you just take the hydrated lime and you mix it with some water and some people use some different things to try and make it stick better I just haven't found that to be necessary and you can all paint up the boards with it with just a big stain you can spray it as well you can just get like a pump spray and spray that Or if you don't even want to do that, you can just take bags of the hydrated lime and generously sprinkle it all over the floor. And it's um, got antibacterial sort of antifungal properties. It's what they used to, anti-mold properties. It's what they used to as well paint houses with. And you can, I'm sure some of you have seen lime paint. I actually use lime paint inside my house because it has anti-mold properties it's amazing paint just amazing you guys should look into it Um, but it's it can be challenging to work with so I will buy bags of hydrated lime from the farm store I sprinkle it all over the floor when I do the goose house I do it the exact same way I clean out all the egg bays and egg laying bays and um I fill them, I sprinkle them with this as well. And then I put down new bedding, which is wood chips. And everything is so nice and clean and there's no issues. Now, that's it from that point on. So in a month from now, when I'm right down to the floor and I have the bedding and the lime, I just start adding more bedding again until next year when this whole thing starts again. So by the time winter comes, We've probably, you know, we have a good base on there and we'll sometimes add some straw if we have some or just more wood chips. And that's 
just every couple days all throughout the winter we're adding on another layer another layer it's just deep pack bedding for anyone that wants to look that up and read more it's very hygienic it makes wonderful compost it keeps the birds warm it's just it's fantastic now as far as uh Here's a little tip for you that I learned years ago from an old farmer friend of mine. He's a lifelong farmer. His name's Henry. And I was milking cows with him one fine morning. And we were talking about his rafters and his barn, which were literally coated in spider webs. And I said, do you ever knock down those spider webs? It was just like... um, a sky of spider webs. It was, they were, the whole barn was just thick with them. And he said, Tara, he was horrified. <laughs> you do not knock down the spider webs. Um, you know, why do you think I don't have red mites in my barn? Why do you think that I have, I don't have issues with fleas in here, any of these other problems that people have in their barns? And we started talking about that. And I had never even thought about that before. Um, about the role of spiders inside the barn. Obviously, they're catching mosquitoes and they're catching flies and everything else, you know, but people put up these big, at our farm store, you can buy these big mega fly strips. And yet, and and then they knock down and they're cleaning up and sanitizing their barn. So I'm going to take a picture of the roof of where our poultry house is and show you it's not quite as impressive as Henry's, but his his barn had a big jump start on mine as far as collecting all the spider villages, and mine's still a little bit behind, but it's getting there. And I am happy to report I have never seen a leg mite in my birds ever. I've not seen any of these little red mites that people are constantly battling. And I think, and what I'm always after in farming, is finding the easy way that works with nature and that makes having these animals enjoyable. And sanitizing the crap out of stuff would not be that for me. And I'm happy to report that it works. Okay, so I was going to go on to my next question, but I think this would be a really good place to cut it off for right now. Uh, We're going to get into water kefir, and we're going to talk more about milking first-time heifers and dewormers and all those sorts of things in part two. But I think just to make this more manageable for everybody, we'll stop this part here. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. And then you can come back to part two if you have enough time right now or at a a later date. So thanks everyone for being here. And like I said, for those whose questions I asked, if you need to know anything further on that, just drop something in the comment or you can wait till this goes around the next time, probably in a month or so from now. Okay, thanks everyone.